Our Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We've just sung of that grace. That you're the that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has broken the bonds of sin, the charges that were held against us, and the shame that comes from that sin. All of that has been broken. We have been freed and released. Oh, thank you, Father, for the freedom that we have in Christ. No more penalty of sin. No more power over sin, of sin over us. But that we might serve you with joy and gladness in a way that brings delight to you. No longer are we inadequate for the task of serving you, but now we have been made adequate because of Christ and his righteousness that has been accounted to us. Thank you, Father, that not only are we freed from the bondage of sin and can do right things, but that you also use us in our service of you. And we thank you for our brother David and for the grace of taking him to Papua New Guinea. Thank you for these decades that he has poured himself into these people and how he has labored hundreds, thousands of hours over that translation and how you are blessing that and now bringing it to completion. We rejoice with that. And at the same time, we ask that you would take him safely to the Finney Islands, that you would guard him as he crosses over and that you would make these weeks that are there profitable so that these dear people would have a copy of the New Testament in their language that they can read and that they might be changed and transformed by that word. And so we commend him to you and we commend those people to you and ask for your ongoing grace in their lives. Thank you for our brother Keith as well. Well, he's in Georgia this weekend and ministering the word there. Might you make him to be fruitful in the ministry of the word and might you bring him safely back home to us. And now, Father, as we ourselves open this word, would you Give us enlightenment and courage and hope and strength from this word. It is a wearying world in which we live. Might we find hope in the one who is over the world and who will bring us along with his people Israel safely home. We commend ourselves to you. Would you enlighten, encourage strengthen and embolden us by this word we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thaddeus Williams writes about the fastest growing religion in the world. Want to venture a guess what that what that religion is? Islam. Anybody else? The fastest growing religion in the world is self-worship. 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself, Williams writes, is the highest goal in life. Further, 86% that believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. 91% of Americans, there's got to be some Christians in there somewhere, affirm this statement. To find yourself, look within yourself. I checked. There's nothing good inside me. Not too many amens on that, but yeah, anyway. 
There are sacred commandments of this ancient and still trending world religion of self-worship, Williams writes. Six tenets or commandments. One, your mind is the source and standard of truth, so no matter what, trust yourself. Two, your emotions are authoritative, so never question or let anyone else question your feelings. Three, you are sovereign. You, you just got to laugh sometimes, don't you? But I mean, that, that's what this believes. You are sovereign. So flex your omnipotence and bend the universe around your dreams and desires. Four, you are supreme. So always act according to your chief end to glorify and enjoy yourself for five. You are the standard of goodness. So don't let anyone oppress you with the antiquated notion of being a sinner who needs grace. Six, you are the creator, so use that limitless creative power to craft your identity and purpose, end quote. If you have ever participated in the cult of self-worship, and I suspect most of us have at certain times anyway, you know the folly of everything I've just read. You know of your inadequacy. You know of your weakness. You know of your inability. And it is that kind of folly of self-worship, self-exaltation, self-promotion that was filling the minds of the Israelites as they're attempting to rebuild the temple in the time of Haggai and Zechariah. And they had come to a place where they figured, you know, we're, we're pretty good. We've done this fasting thing for 70 years and... Um, And we have this measure of righteousness before God and we're protected and we're safe now. The temple's halfway done and everything looks good. We're good. And we don't need anything else. And God interjects with four statements to correct their folly of self-worship. We looked at two of those statements back in chapter 7 of the book of Zechariah. And this morning we're going to start Zechariah chapter 8, where God points to something better than self-worship. He points to God-worship and God-dependence and God-power. And the opening message, or the message of these opening verses in chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, the message is simply this, God's power and God's grace are adequate to provide for his people. You're inadequate. Israel was inadequate. Bethel was inadequate. Every man who's ever lived on this earth, save the person of Jesus Christ, has been inadequate. But God has never been inadequate. He is always enough. His power is authoritative. His power is pervasive. His power is limitless. His power is able to conquer everything that needs conquering. And so Zechariah chapter 8 will focus on this, on unlimited power of God. It's going to use the title, the Lord of hosts, or as Rusty read earlier, Yahweh of hosts, That word, that title that means God is almighty, he's going to use it in this single chapter 18 times. The title appears in the Old Testament, I think, 255 times. It appears in this book 53 times. More than 20% of the uses of this title 
up here in this book. And it is Zechariah's way of saying, stop looking at yourselves and look at the only one who is omnipotent, at the only one who is almighty. You are weak. He is not. And to make that point even clearer, not just 53 times in this book, but 18 times in this chapter, he says, Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, so that they get the message. It's not about you. It's about him. And you can trust him. Whatever else is going on around you, you can trust him. God is gracious to inadequate, to weak, to overestimating people. There are two main sections in this chapter. It is indicated by the phrase that we see in verse 1, Then the word of the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts, came, saying... We see that same phrase in verse 18 with a little addition, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying... I think it's to be understood that it was coming, this message from Yahweh of hosts was coming directly to Zechariah in both those instances. And that divides the chapter into two primary sections. And in this chapter, the Lord, the Lord is looking back at, uh, has been looking in chapter 7 rather, back at the nation of Israel and their disobedience and their rebellion and the discipline that would come on them if they don't repent and don't change. And in chapter 8, now he turns and he says, this is what's coming. This is your future. This is your hope. And within this section, there are seven smaller sections in the chapter. Five of those sections are in the passage that we want to look at this morning. They are five demonstrations of God's power and grace to his people for the future. So as God looks to the future and says, this is what's coming, he reveals himself as the almighty God who is able to bring about everything that he has promised to them. And we're going to see five of those promises in these verses, verses 1 to 8. The first demonstration of God's power, verses 1 and 2, we find the grace and the power of God's jealousy. The word of the Lord came to me. There are four oracles, four speeches from God, if you will, in chapter 7 and 8. They are in chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 1 is the third speech or oracle. And then in verse 18 of this chapter begins the fourth oracle. And within this chapter, in chapter 7, there are seven little subsections. And those are denoted by the phrase, thus says the Lord of hosts. So every time you see that little phrase, thus says the Lord of hosts, You're seeing another introduction of another idea. And that just is a handy way to break out this chapter, break down this chapter and see the flow of what uh, God is doing and saying in this chapter. Remember the context of this chapter. All of these sayings of God are in response to what the people from Bethel had asserted back in chapter 7. So we see the townsmen, the leaders of Bethel, chapter 7, verse 2, coming to Jerusalem, verse 3, speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets saying, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I've done for these many years? Do we got to keep fasting? 
We've done all this fasting thing for all of these years, and should we keep on fasting in order to seek God's protection, in order to seek God's provision? And um, in chapter 7, God repudiates them for their attempt to manipulate him, to control him, uh, to manipulate their circumstances by their fasting. And he's saying it's not by fasting that you're going to get this. You need to repent and you need to walk in obedience to me. So that's chapter 7 in two different speeches. Chapter 8 dramatically turns. The tone is way different. If you... If you turn the page from chapter 7 to chapter 8 and you think there's going to be more of the same, you're confronted by something that is very, very different. Here, chapter 8 is filled with hope and encouragement that comes after the warning and after the judgment. In chapter 7, the nation was to repent and to live righteously because of the warning of judgment. In chapter 8, the nation was to repent and live righteously because of the hope of restoration. God's made a promise and He's coming and He will fulfill it. And the first declaration that came from the Lord of hosts is given to us in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. There's the first, the, first in, uh, the first use of that phrase indicating the first thing that he's going to teach. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. I appreciated the way the Legacy Standard Bible translated that. The ESV does something similar as well. I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. That word jealousy actually appears twice in that phrase. And so the New American Standard tries to capture the sense of that by saying, I'm really, really jealous. I'm exceedingly jealous. But it's helpful to hear that God's saying, I'm jealous with this um, exceeding or great jealousy. In fact, it's not the only times that he uses the word. Notice the end of the verse, uh, verse 2. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. So three times God uses that word in this verse. In fact, it makes us think back to chapter 1, verse 14, where the Lord said something similar. So to the angel who was speaking with me said, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Same phraseology that's used there. Now we call jealousy the green-eyed monster. I think Shakespeare was the first to coin that phrase, if I remember correctly. Uh, We call jealousy the green-eyed monster. It is self-serving. It is possessive. It is manipulative. It is rarely seen as something beneficial to a a relationship. If you say, my friend is jealous, you're thinking, what, whoa. Or my spouse is jealous. nobody, Nobody says, I have the most jealous husband As if it's a good thing, right? In fact, it's been described this way. Here's here's the way jealousy works. I love something very much. Indeed, too much. I desire, in fact, to possess it completely. But the thing I love slips out of my hands and passes into another's. I begin to experience the gnawing pangs of jealousy... And strangely, the feelings of zeal and love begin to change. By the dark, transforming power of sin, my love turns to hate. Once I was open and happy, filled to the brim with exquisite delight, but no longer. 
Now I am closed within a narrow compass of inner rage, intensely and insanely angry. Okay, that's the jealousy we know, isn't it? And God says, He's jealous. How then is God's jealousy something good? It is good because God's jealousy is a reflection of His love for His people and His commitment to them But with these ideas, first of all, God's jealousy means he tolerates no rivals to himself or to his people. He is protective of his people so that they can maintain an allegiance to him alone. So we would say that God's jealousy is protective. It guards, it holds, it keeps. And his jealousy flows out of his covenantal relationship with him. And that's why... Uh, This translation, Yahweh of host, is so helpful. That word Yahweh, that name Yahweh, reflects the covenant relationship that God has with his people, Israel. He uses um, this word for jealousy. He explains himself as being a jealous God numerous times in the Old Testament. But let me just give you one example. Exodus 34, verse 13 and following. You are to tear down pagan altars, tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. Verse 14, for you shall not worship any other God for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters might play the harlot with their gods. And cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. Why is God jealous? He wants to protect them. And says... In his jealousy, I'm keeping you in this relationship I have with you so that you don't go outside that relationship and seek satisfaction in someone or something or some kind of worship apart from me that will not only be dissatisfying but destructive. So it protects and keeps. And that protection means that he will at times discipline his people to keep them within the bonds of that covenant relationship. And so we we find an example of that even just in chapter 7, verse 14. But I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they had not known, speaking about Israel and their disobedience. Thus the land is desolated behind them, so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate. God God says, I'm going to discipline and correct so that they come back. And if you're not careful, he's saying to the present generation, I'm going to do today what I did back then. So in his jealousy, he protects and keeps. But that second, there's a second meaning of his jealousy or a second emphasis about his jealousy. And that it is that he will also judge those who attempt to harm his people. You, you mess with his people and he's going to take care of you. That's Terry's translation, not other scholars. 114, the angel was speaking to me, said, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. We already noted that. Verse 15 
But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. So I was angry with my people Israel, but... I am more angry with the nations who carried out my discipline of Israel to an extent that they weren't supposed to carry it out. And now I'm going to take out my wrath on them because they picked on my people. And so in his jealousy, God protects, preserves and keeps his people from those who are outside who would attempt to harm them. So one writer says God's wrath. His burning jealousy is not against me, but against those things that would draw me away from him. And that's the emphasis in this verse. In jealousy, God will defend his people by pouring out his wrath on her enemies. Those who are the enemies of Israel are not safe. Because God will pour out his wrath on them. And that's the answer to the question. How is God's jealousy a grace to Israel? God's jealousy as a demonstration of his power is a grace to them because that's what's protecting them. They had foolishly thought, oh, it's all about our fasting. And we did this fasting thing for 70 years and now we're safe. So it's not about your fasting. Your legalism is of no benefit to you. Your protection, God says, is my grace manifested through my righteous allegiance and power in jealousy to my people. It is my burning love for you that is protecting you now and will protect you in the future. You are kept by me and my jealousy that preserves you and by nothing else. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Jesus Christ, it is this same jealous love of God that protects us and keeps us and guards us. It is that same jealous love that keeps us from wandering away from Him. It is that same jealous love that preserves us from our enemies. We are safe with Him. So Jesus says, John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My sheep belong to me. They're mine. I am jealous for them. And out of that jealousy for them, I preserve them and I protect them from the enemy. And ultimately, I will pour out my wrath on that enemy. So see, first of all, in this passage, the grace and power of God's jealousy. See, secondly, the grace of God's presence. Verse 3, thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, that saying that's denoting a new idea. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. I will return. Notice that he says, not only will he return, but I will dwell. I'm staying. I'm not leaving. This is, as it were, God's home. God's residence, God's place. 
This statement has the same emphasis that we saw earlier in this book. Chapter 1, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion and my house will be built and it declares the Lord of hosts and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. I'm coming home. I'm coming to dwell there. I'm coming to live there. And that had to be a massive encouragement to the Israelites as they as they're in the middle of this project of rebuilding the temple. They're roughly at this point in chapter seven and eight, roughly about halfway done with the rebuilding of the temple. And they had to be tremendously encouraged. This this project is going to come to its ultimate end. And God will fulfill his promises to us. I want you to notice something else in this. Thus says the Lord, verse 3, I'll return to Jerusalem and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. That word dwell is the same root word that's used for the word tabernacle or tent. It's the word that was used for the tabernacle as the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness for those 40 years. And then what they first set up in Israel before they built Solomon's temple. It's the place where God dwelt. And God says, I'm going to tabernacle there. As soon as God said that, I think the Israelites had to think about Ezekiel. And Ezekiel chapter 10. Now the cherubim, verse 3, were standing on the right side of the temple and the man entered. And the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. So God's glory leaves the Holy of Holies and it goes to the doorway of the temple. And the temple was filled with a cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Verse 18, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood above the cherubim. The glory of the God leaves. And from that point forward, while there was a temple, the glory of God was not present in the temple. And God says, in this chapter, I'm coming back. The glories returning. And they had to also think about when that would happen. Chapter 43 of Ezekiel. Then he led me to the gate, verse 1, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chebar. And I fell on my face and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, The glory of the Lord filled the house. He's coming home. And Ezekiel speaks of that. And I think as the Israelites heard this message in Zechariah, they had to be anticipating that day when God's coming back. 
And he's returning. And what's the point? The point is that when God comes and when God is present, His people are safe. There's no safety in legalism. There's no safety outside this, these walls. In fact, friends, there's not safety inside these walls. Gathering as a body, as sweet and as, fellow, and as wonderful as that fellowship is, we don't have safety from the world. But there is safety when God is present. The enemy will not flourish. The enemy will not be victorious. Some of you have small children at home. Some of you remember, vaguely, it's a distant memory, but you vaguely remember having small children in the home. In the middle of the night, there's that call, 2 a.m. Daddy! I'm scared! And what do you do? Being a good dad, you kick your wife out and tell her, no, no. <laughs> Being a good dad, you say, they're calling for me, i got to go. And you go and you kneel down next to that bedside. And what do you say? First words out of your mouth. What do you say? Daddy is here. What's that designed to do? You're safe. You're protected. You put your arms around that child. You hug that child. You dissuade them of the unreality of dreams. And you remind them of the reality of your presence. And the safety that that engenders. And then, until they drift off to sleep, you stay there. I'm with you. And you've given them peace, comfort, rest. That's this verse. When you're outside in this world, and you're saying it looks out of control, God says, there's coming a day when I'm coming home. And you're safe. You're protected. When Jesus is present, his people are safe. When you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of Christ, no matter what happens outside of you, you are safe. You're protected. You're kept. Our world yearns for safety, doesn't it? We just want, we just want no risk, high safety. And we know how much the world longs for safety by how much we spend every month on insurance. Don't think about it. It'll discourage you. Hundreds and hundreds of dollars every month fly out of my bank account to go to pay for insurance. Nothing's safe. That insurance doesn't protect me and it doesn't protect you. But in Christ, we're safe. There's another benefit, not just to His presence, but when Christ returns, and I believe He is speaking here of the return of God in the person of Christ to sit on the Davidic throne in the millennial kingdom. Christ comes and He dwells in the midst of Jerusalem. Christ is on His throne What's the benefit of that? Not only is he there, but notice the middle of verse 3. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. 
What's the benefit of Christ coming? Oh, only this little benefit called that Jerusalem will be the city of truth, the city of faithfulness, the city where faithfulness is found. I think it's referring really to two things. It could be the faithfulness of his people, but supremely it is about the faithfulness of the king in the city. It's the faithful city because the king is faithful. The king is faithful to provide for his people. And when he provides for his people and they are his own and they're following after him, both the king and then ultimately the subjects will be known for their faithfulness. Isaiah described Jerusalem as a place where truth and faithfulness had fallen in the street. No more. There's coming a day in that kingdom when truth will be revived and truth and faithfulness will live in and will control Jerusalem once again. And not only that, but the mountain, he says, will be called the Holy Mountain. There the mountain is Zion, the, the, the mount where the temple is. I think he's, Zion is, is a broad term. It can refer to Israel. It can refer to Judah. It can refer to Jerusalem. It can refer to the temple. I think clearly here, because he's using the word mount, he's referring to the mount on which the temple resides, the holy mount, the holy mountain. And so Zion, the temple, will be known for holiness because the king who lives there is holy. There's nothing that is unholy in him. And because of the holiness of God in that place, it will become a magnet for the nations. It will come about, Micah says in chapter 4, Micah 4 verses 1 and following, it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways that we may walk in his paths for from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war why because God's a holy God and they want him and they're drawn to him and they're attracted to him And these attributes of truth and holiness remind the reader and the hearer that only Yahweh has the power and authority to change the character of a nation and a people. Fasting doesn't do it. No other kind of legalism does it. The only thing that does it is the truth of God, the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God. He can. Lord of hosts, almighty God is powerful to do it and he will. Just wait. And this is a reminder to us that only by God's grace will we receive what we really want and need. And what we really want and need is truth and holiness. Fasting didn't and won't make Israel holy. 
But the presence of God did and will. And the presence of God will do the same for us as well. Third observation about God's power in these verses. Verses 4 and 5. Notice the grace of God's future. I put future in quotation marks because... Does the God who is transcendent over time and created time and is outside the bonds of time actually have a future? Well, no. But there is a future that He has designed for us that we will enjoy with Him. And that's what He's alluding to here in verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, that, that transition, another idea. Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of his age. What's the result of God being in Jerusalem? What's the result of Christ being on his messianic throne? The result is this. The most vulnerable of people will receive his care and protection and they will flourish. The elderly, verse 4, may still have to lean on a staff or a cane for support, but they are safe walking in the streets. We were just talking in the office the other day about trying to walk across from here to Kroger. Um, it's not for the foolhardy. I actually have crossed um, from here to Lake Lawn Equipment across 377. Yeah, not anymore. You don't do that. Why? It's not safe. The old, even those who are walking slowly because they can't get, a, get around with their own strength, their own power, apart from leaning on a cane, they're safe. They're protected. They're guarded. Children as well, verse 5. The streets of the city are going to be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. Um, more than once, my mother had to call me out of a place of danger when I was in a place where I shouldn't have been. And the prophet says, they'll be safe. They go to the middle of the street and they're safe. No person will harm them. No chariot will harm them. No one will come against them. No warrior of a, an enemy nation will harm them. They'll be safe. Again, I think he's speaking clearly here of the millennial kingdom. Perhaps the illusion is similar to Isaiah chapter 11. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. And the young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When I am on my throne, on my holy mountain, you're safe. That's the future for Israel. 
This had to be incredibly encouraging to the Israelites as they heard this because even though the Babylonian captivity had ended, we still know from, from Nehemiah, even a generation after this, that the population of Jerusalem was scarce. There, it wasn't a fully uh, populated city yet. And here the prophet reminds, there's safety, there's protection, you're guarded. God's grace manifested through his power as the Lord of hosts will provide for all people. His power will put his king on his throne and his power will care for the marginal, the overlooked, the weak. When he says the old and the young, I think he means us to understand the oldest and the youngest and everybody in between. There's no one that's going to get overlooked. No one who won't be protected. All will be kept in God's future kingdom. There's a fourth observation I want you to notice. That's verse 6. I want you to notice the grace of God's power. The grace of God's power. The promise of verses 4 and 5, frankly, as well as the rest of the chapter, is remarkable. It, it frankly just stretches what we think is possible. And the people may well have been tempted to say, no way, that can't be. That's impossible for us. And so God anticipates, or perhaps he hears their response. And so he says this in verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult for the sight of the remnant of of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? Declares the Lord of hosts. The remnant had gone back to the land from Babylon. The opposition that they had faced had precluded them from rebuilding the temple for 15 years. They had been overwhelmed by the opposition that they had faced. And now, while they're still rebuilding, there is still opposition out there. And when they hear these kinds of statements, they had to think, we can't even rebuild the temple. How can we do that for old people and young people? And the question and the objection seems to be the same kind of thing as what Sarah raised when Abraham told him, by the way, you're about to get pregnant at 90. In fact, the language is really similar in both Genesis 18 and Zechariah 8, almost as if the writer is thinking about this incident. Sarah Genesis 18:12 Sarah laughed to herself saying After I have become so old shall I have pleasure my lord um being pregnant being old also I'm old I'm going to be pregnant at this age that's what she's saying And the Lord said to Abraham why did Sarah laugh saying Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old Is anything too difficult For the Lord, at the appointed time, I'll return to you. And at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. (laughs) You think making somebody pregnant is too hard for me? You think that that stops me, God says? And the implication clearly is this from the people. If we can't do this, then God can't do it either. 
God's no stronger than me. God has no ability beyond my ability. And God's correction is simple and clear. Just because you can't doesn't mean I can't. God Almighty is able to accomplish what man cannot. And just because he has not done it yet doesn't mean he can't. I, I cannot tell you how many times I've come home at the end of the day, I've walked in and Regine said, guess what? What? I had a divine appointment today. Shocked. She's always having divine appointments, meaning gospel opportunities. And she tells me these stories about people she meets. And I can't tell you how many times, as I did again recently, I just shake my head and say, I can't believe it. And the last time I did that, Rachel just looked at me. I don't know if she rolled her eyes or not, but she had the right to. Terry, this is the Lord. It's His work. I should know that. I mean, I'm the guy that always walks around saying, who knows what the Lord will do? He can do it. And that's the point of verse 6. Who knows what the Lord will do? He can and does act. And I want you to notice something else about the, this verse. Notice how it begins. Thus says the Lord of hosts. We've said over and over and over and over. Lord of hosts is a way of saying God is almighty. He is sovereign over every army in every place. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's all his. He is the most powerful being there is. And so the verse begins that way. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Just because you think it's hard, does that mean I can't do it? Declares the Lord of hosts. That saying is bracketed by God Almighty. And it's it's a reminder to them. God can do this. Most of us have have circumstances in our lives that seem impossible to us, don't we? Or can I just remove the word most and say all of us? We just can't fix it. We can't fix the marriage. We can't fix the children. We can't fix the illness. We can't fix the financial troubles. We can't fix the temptations to coveting or disobedience. We can't fix escaping troubles with sex or alcohol. We can't fix the results of someone's sin against us. We can't fix the despondency. We can't fix the courts and the political rulers. That's been obvious. Just not much we can fix, is there? And this verse is not a promise that God's going to fix all that stuff. But it is a promise that He can. And it is a promise that He will at the end. You can trust Him. These things have not overwhelmed Him. God is able. God can fix your marriage and your children and your finances and your heart. What's your impossibility? What are you running around saying, well, if only God would act, but I don't even think that God could do this. Here in this verse, God is not limited by your problems. He is God Almighty. 
There's a day coming for both Israel and us when his power will be on full display through the correction of all the problems that overwhelm us today. Be of good courage. He is strong enough for you. There's a fourth, ob- fifth observation I want you to see. It's in verses 7 and 8. It is the grace of God's salvation. The fifth promise of what God will do in the future. The Lord of hosts says in verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west. He's not just thinking there about a temporal salvation, though that will be involved at some level, but he's thinking about a final salvation of the nation. He is thinking about the fulfillment of all the promises that he made to Israel, starting with Abraham and moving through Jeremiah and the new covenant. I will save my people. My people will come to inhabit the land as promised by me to Abraham. My people will finally be and fully be a redeemed nation for me. And this salvation, he says, is going to come as I bring people from the east and from the west. What does he mean by that? Well, to the east, directly to the east, lay Babylon. And Babylon has been an ongoing oppressor of Israel, so that's not hard to figure out where they're coming from. To the west is the Mediterranean Sea. So that doesn't really hold up. What what does he mean by that? Perhaps he means Philistia. I mean, Philistia was an oppressor. It was on the northwest northwest corner of uh, Israel. And perhaps he's alluding to that. I think it's much simpler than that. He just means from as far west as you can go, as far east as you go, all around the world, I'm going to bring my people home to inhabit the land. I'm going to bring my chosen promised people to inhabit the promised land. One writer has said that this might be the greatest promise of Israel's regathering and salvation in all of Scripture. Verse 7. I'm going to bring them home. But notice this. Not only will God live in Jerusalem as his dwelling, that's verse 3, but here he says that his people will live with him And I will bring them and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they will be my people. He's bringing them back, but he's not just bringing them back to a land. He's bringing them back to a relationship. He's bringing them back to fellowship. He's bringing them back to intimacy, to joy, to satisfaction with him. And all of that, he says, is part of my salvation plan for them. I will save and I will restore. It's all his work. Is he powerful enough? Yes, he's God Almighty. He can do it. He can bring them back. I will be their God. That's new covenant language. Jeremiah 31, 31. I'm bringing them back to relationship, to fellowship. And he says, I will do this being their God, end of the verse, in truth and righteousness. What he does in bringing them back will be done in truth. It's that same word truth that we've seen in chapter 7 and now again in chapter 8. Probably has a sense of faith or faithfulness. So I will be their God in faithfulness or faithfully and in righteousness. 
And First Kings makes clear that this is, these are marks of the Davidic kingdom. This is, this is the ultimate David on his throne ruling in truth, faithfulness, and righteousness. They have their life. They have their restoration. They have their fellowship. They have their intimacy through righteousness. And while this promise of salvation is not yet filled for Israel, the power of the Lord makes it certain. It's coming. You can trust it. Whatever's going on outside the walls of the city, God says you can trust that you're protected and you're safe. And the way that they're going to be saved ultimately as a nation is by believing in God having faith in Him who is faithful and having faith in His righteousness. And brothers and sisters, that's the same for us today. We have safety and we have protection from God when we trust Him in faith that His righteousness that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ as He obeyed every aspect of the law in the 33 years He was on this earth has been imputed to us, accounted to us when we believe in Him. And friend, everything I've said today is true if you believe in Jesus. It's true of you if you believe in Jesus. And He grafts you in the promises that He's given to Israel. If you don't believe in Jesus, there is no safety, there is no protection, there is no good news, there is no hope. So I call you today... If you don't believe, you must believe that this God who is in the heavens is an almighty God, a powerful God, an infinite God, and He is able to do everything that you need in this life and in the next life. And He will keep you safe here and He will keep you safe there. And the only way to be safe is to trust That Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sin. He paid to have the power of sin removed from you. And that when you believe in Him, He grants those things to you. And He will keep you safe. Friend, if you haven't believed, would you make today the day that you begin your life of faith with Him? We're all inclined to self-worship just like the Bethelites were. What's better than self-worship? What's better than self-righteousness? God-worship and God-righteousness. The self-dependent, self-worshipping Israelites are not adequate. And you and I, when we attempt to be self-dependent and self-worshipping, are not adequate either. But even as God helped the Israelites in their post-exile days, and even as He guided them in their folly, so God helps us with His limited power. We are not enough. We've never been enough. We will never have enough, but He is always enough. And He is able. You trust Him. Father, thank You for this reminder to us. These words that You spoke to Zechariah, two and a half millennia ago, still resonate with us today. Israel was safe, and we are safe. Not because of us, but because of you. You are God Almighty, 
You are the Lord of hosts. You are the covenant God, Yahweh, who controls and is sovereign over all things and all people and all armies. And when we are in you, we are safe. Help us in our unbelief and comfort us in our weakness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.